know, Carlin, I, I'm a little confused. Uh, Oppenheimer was way more sparkly than I thought it was. I mean, I thought I knew about all these German physicists, you know, uh, you know, Robert Oppenheimer. I didn't realize that there was another one named Ken. <laughs> oh, I get it. You saw <laughs> me. Don't make me you. keep making this joke without backup. <laughs> I'm floundering in the English channel. You're just watching me drown. You're like, tell me more about that joke. I don't have it. That was the joke. And it's, I used it. That joke was, uh, it bombed. What? We're in a race against the Nazis. head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. I'll work here. We'll ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Wow, I mean, what a film. I'm, I, maybe I'm not as well versed in history as I should be, but I was a little confused. <laughs> that is fair. I was, I was not really tracking, like I got there, like I understood a couple things. Okay. Like I know about communism and I know right. about, I know about the Spanish civil war and I right. know about obviously Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but this movie was a lot more about Oppenheimer's phony trial for his security clearance, right? Right. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm mm -hmm. really excited to be doing this conversation with you because your major in college was history and and PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics. So kind of a bundle of lots of what this movie was talking about. The only thing that you haven't studied is physics. Heck no. <laughs> you don't really need to know too much about physics to watch this movie. That's right. But you know what? If you do like physics, you will really, really appreciate this movie. One of the lines that I liked the most is where one of Oppenheimer's professors says, algebra is like sheet music. Uh, the important thing isn't that you can uh, read it perfectly. It's that you can hear the music, mm. right? Do you, do you hear the music behind it? Yeah. I thought that was good. Because you're right, I am very much on the humanities side. We both are. You know, if you ask, are Leander's good at math? The exception is my wife, who was grafted in. You know, yeah, a wild olive yeah. branch who happened to be good at math. And our grandpa, <laughs> Papa Al. He was an engineer. He, he was good. He was an electrical engineer, yes. Um, and, and of the humanities, my expertise is in arts and crafts. So I'm really far from... <laughs> arts and crafts. But you're like in extreme arts and crafts. <laughs> The point being, you don't need to know every little detail about the math of physics to appreciate the music of mm. physics. And so I actually have had so many conversations in the last couple of years about like quantum physics because I've just wanted to ex like understand mm -hmm. it that maybe I can give you a primer. I think that's it. what this whole episode is going to be. You priming me on 
policy, philosophy, economics, history, and physics. Yeah. Now, before we dig into the themes of this movie, Case, let's talk a little bit about some of those surprise, really graphic, and really lengthy, explicit sex scenes. Oh right at the my beginning. gosh. If you thought you were going to watch a movie about uh, uh, physics, yeah, you were half wrong and half right. <laughs> Carlin, I... It's kind of with a heavy heart that I feel like we need to do a disclaimer on this movie. And we, we I don't think I've done this this heavily, but I would just urge people watching this movie. Well, two things. One, just because we're reviewing it does not mean I can in good conscience recommend it. Second of all, uh-huh. if you're going to go see it, please use uh, caution because of the freaking sex scenes uh, that yeah. Chris Nolan added. They're everywhere. They're really like like painfully long, like, uh, and they don't serve any purpose in the movie. They're pretty descriptive. He tries to be artistic with it, I think, but, but Casey explain why, um, give us a good faith argument. Why should we be avoidant of watching sex scenes like the one that was in this movie? Yeah. I understand a lot of people, especially if you're not a Christian and you're not a part of, you know, a church or anything, you're going to come at that and maybe feel like, okay, why are you being so prudish? But I think it's a good opportunity to just make our case here. I mean, I believe at its core, uh, sex is powerful. And the purpose of sex is to strengthen relationships above everything else. Uh, And ultimately, it's to strengthen marriages, right? Like at bedrock, the purpose of sex is so that kids have a safe haven in the world a mom and a dad who love each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mm -hmm. as a general Christian worldview principle, anything that supports that design function of sex, helping mom and dad love each other, keep the sparks alive, produce a home with children and keep that home together. Anything that strengthens Mm -hmm. that purpose is good. Anything that degrades that purpose is bad. So if you just play that out, then graphic depictions of sex do the opposite. Right. And for men in particular, Mm -hmm. men are Mm -hmm. primarily visual. Sex is designed to catch your eye and it adds to your visual matrix of female bodies in the world. And it's counterintuitive for a lot of guys who've never heard this before, but that has the potential to seriously damage your real life relationship with a woman. Right. It it actually it leads to all kinds Mm -hmm. of comparison, not just for men. I think women then find themselves doing the comparison game that's so ubiquitous in society. Uh, So, I mean, just first and foremost, Mm -hmm. as a married guy, I'm going to take every step possible to protect my marriage, which involves not watching graphic depictions of sex, right? It's it's not the same Mm -hmm. as pretending that Mm -hmm. sex doesn't exist. And I want to be clear about that. Like, if you read the Bible, the Bible is not rated PG when it comes to even its depictions Mm -hmm. of sexuality, Uh, both in a negative light. Like, there are depictions of fallen humanity's propensity to abuse sex throughout scripture, right? And those are descriptive. Mm-hmm. They're just highlighting the, the terribleness of the world, which I think is what Oppenheimer was trying to do. Uh, but mm-hmm. that is different than watching an act of sex. And I just can't lie. Oppenheimer portrayed sex, right? It didn't imply it. It portrayed it. But you're right. There's a really big difference between talking about it and saying something about it, which you can't. Absolutely. You, you should do. We should... Like, even maybe we can talk about this in our theme section, but maybe what uh, Christopher Nolan was saying about sex totally. was worth saying. Um, but by putting it on screen, you're doing more than just saying something about it. You're actually triggering people's physical response yeah. to sex. 
um, which muddies the water and and it it produces a real effect and you're right it it weakens relationships whether you admit it or not whether you say you're cool with it or not this is biology like this is how your eyes and your brain are wired so you need to be a good steward of it yeah and listen everyone's different and so your reaction to this might not have been that but i guarantee you one thing the 14 year old boys in the audience didn't see it that way (laughs) they they didn't have the same cool detached response that you did And those are the next generation of men that we're raising and sending into society. And so the question is, what do we want them to think about sex and sexuality? When it came to telling the story of Gene Tatlock, I don't don't even, I'm not going to venture what Chris Nolan was trying to do. I'm sure it, it had artistic merit. But listen, if we're observing Gene Tatlock, this tragic figure who takes her own life, and we're just seeing full frontal nudity on her, especially for the adolescent brain, you can't view her first as a person and second as a sex object. You view her first as a sex object, second as a person, right? And, and whatever emotional subtlety there is to that is going to be lost on, on young men who are watching this. I just, I know that, I know that that's an oversimplification, right? Like I know you can see it, but the, the overwhelming tendency. So then what we're doing is crossing our wires, we're, we're provoking a titillating response to things that are tragic mm-hmm. and horrible, right? And we're, we're viewing something that's meant to be private, which in its worst elements is just pure voyeurism. There's, there's an angle of this where uh, I, I think filmmakers could tend to use nudity and sexuality as kind of like, let's put a little kick in this, like let's spice it up and that will just add a little bit of punch, you know, the way he sees in food. But I just want to say, if you claim to value primarily women, because um, nudity for women in film is so disproportionate and it has such a different effect on both men and women alike, that what you're actually doing is treating the female body as if it's like a commodity to just spice up your movie. It's so dehumanizing. It does exactly the last thing that any of us should want to do, which is over-sexualize and dehumanize people. Especially women. Sex should lead to relationship, and I, be- I firmly believe it should lead to monogamous, committed relationships. Because that's part of its design function. It's a bonding agent, right? Yeah. So. No, I, so I'm glad we said that. Um, that that's that's an important thing to address. Boots on the ground, Carlin. I mean, every, all our listeners are going to have to make their own decisions about this. But for me, it means I probably just won't see this movie again, which sucks because it was so good. I liked every other element of it. It was powerful, but I just, I can't in good conscience recommend it. And I would say if you're listening to this and you uh, haven't seen it in theaters, I guess my recommendation would be wait till it comes out on video at at best and just have your thumb on the trigger to skip those scenes. You know what I mean? Because I just, I can't in good conscience as a Christian recommend that. So that's our stance. People will disagree, but I think we got to be honest about it. Yeah. I had a nice seat by myself and then some random adolescent guy, old enough to be seeing a movie by himself, but that's about as old as he looked, sat down (laughs) right next to me. Come on. And he was like playing with his keys the whole time and on his phone. And dude, halfway halfway through, I just got up and found a different seat that happened to be like right at the front of the theater. And then I I lost half of my hearing. Ah. That's rough. But it was very uncomfortable. Maybe that's why you're confused. It's because of Key's guy. I was really distracted. Come on, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe before 
before we jump into the themes, could you give us a little overview of the historical setting of this movie? What should we know? Uh, what, what what context clues do we need? Just fill us in a little bit. I honestly, Carlin, have done just like like hours of, to be honest, hours of research since then, partially because I'm just fascinated, but also to just like help bring the story into focus because like all Chris Nolan films, it was fast paced. There's three different vignettes happening. First of all, there's the story of Oppenheimer's original journey from Cambridge to Los Alamos, right? Uh, that one happens in, I guess, normal color. Then there's the, his security clearance kangaroo hearing, Yeah. right? And as a colorblind person, I would ask you, did that one happen in a different, slightly different color tone um, or was it normal? That's a good question. I, I'd have to go back and pay attention. My, my intuition says that's something Christopher Nolan would do. In any case, that's a different part of the timeline, but we're watching it interspersed, right? His security, they're in the tiny room, getting yeah. he's getting grilled yeah. by the people. Then there's the uh, Louis Strauss congressional hearing. That's all in black and white. Yeah, and that is, timeline-wise, that's happening the most, the latest in the timeline? The latest, that's right, yep. But they're all chopped together to tell a story. So I think if you if you approach it just with that knowledge, that helps. That who was Louis Strauss? There's two relationships he had with Oppenheimer. And I, I needed to Google this one to be sure about uh -huh. it. The first one is, in 1947, Oppenheimer was appointed director of the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton University, where Louis Strauss was an administrator. I think he was the president. I can't be sure. Okay. But so one, one vignette is Princeton, right? He's recruited to be a teacher at Princeton. That's that conversation they have on the lawn with Einstein, right? Right. They kept revisiting that. So he does take that appointment yes. and he, he works there yes. for several years. That happened after the Manhattan Project was completed. Oh. Yeah. Okay, good. That's helpful. And then, uh, and this is where it's doubly confusing. So then the rest of the scenes we're watching are where Strauss is Oppenheimer's boss in a different capacity, right? Strauss was the chairman also, in addition to being with Princeton, he was the chairman of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC. They throw that acronym oh. around a ton. So he's in yeah. charge of advising Congress on how the U.S. is going to use atomic energy, right? And Oppenheimer yeah. is an underling of him. Oppenheimer's technical title was chairman of the General Advisory Committee. So, But that just means okay. Strauss is his boss, both at Princeton and at the Atomic Energy Commission. And that's simultaneous to Los Alamos. That happens, all of that happens after Los Alamos. So everything happens. So the Los Alamos timeline is the first chronologically right. thing that happens. Oppenheimer's journey from Cambridge through Los Alamos and the and it culminates in the detonation, uh, the Trinity test, right? Right. That's the first thing that happened. Then he goes to the security clearance kangaroo hearing uh -huh. where they just grill him and his, he's broken down. Then in black and white, I don't know uh -huh. why, because it's the 50s, I guess, yeah. Strauss is getting grilled himself. The tables are flipped and the truth uh -huh. about Oppenheimer comes out for us, the audience, to really observe, I guess, Got which is why it. they start with that part of the story. That's when uh, the character played by Remy Malik. <laughs> yeah, Anna, right. One of the scientists. Yeah, he, they they like vindicate Oppenheimer and yeah, condemn Strauss. Exactly. To me, that felt like kind the of. main because uh, they set up Oppenheimer as he's like pretty morally ambiguous. Like he's not. Mm -hmm. He doesn't make great choices with women. Mm -hmm. We're not sure how much we should condemn him for 
working on the project. Like, how responsible is he for the A-bomb? But then it felt to me like the climax was switchy, switchy. Uh, Strauss is actually, like, kind of the main villain. Yeah, switchy, switchy indeed. And especially the, the the great reveal moment when the whole time he's fixated on what did Oppenheimer say to Einstein to turn him against me? Why would I get such a, a grisly look from him? Like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? And then at the end, that one guy goes, maybe they weren't talking about you at all. Maybe mm. his feelings about you were based on your actions to date. And mm. you think Oppenheimer's your nemesis, but you're your own nemesis because... You've been a bad guy this whole time. And then we actually do get to hear that conversation. And he's right. They Oppenheimer says nothing at all about Strauss. Never talking about Einstein him. Yeah, just right. has these feelings of his own accord. It, <sighs> so interesting. What do you think about that? I have lots of thoughts about that. But can we pin the Strauss conversation to be our like last theme? Because yes. I think it, it might make sense if we discuss some of the other themes right. th- first. I love it. Pin the Real quick, though. Pin the Strauss on the donkey. Pin the Strauss on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, though, Carlin, uh-huh. I don't know much about physics, but I wondered if... It... You want you want to ask me? You want me to tell you about physics? Or do you want you, me to? No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you all about it. Okay. Carlin, what did you make of the physics in this? Yeah, physics. Okay, physics are these little fuzzy vibrating molecules that make up the universe (laughs) physics is a noun and the things are the physics got it (laughs) and they spin around real fast real fast though real fast though real fast like you can't even you can't see them they look like a line because they're going so fast and true when and then it makes it so that you can't pass your hands through each other oh yeah there was that conversation yeah yeah and it's all just this big flirtatious. Uh, oh, so physics is about getting that's what flirty. Physics is. physics is just about getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> physics is about picking up somebody just else's up, wife. Yeah. Hmm. Uncomfy. Hmm. Uncomfy. So there you go. Glad you asked. Yeah. All right. No, what, what did you mean? What did you actually well, mean? Well, I think this is just <laughs> this is just helpful for me. Again, <laughs> have I studied physics? No. But I think it's just helpful to note just the in the biggest possible terms what was happening then in the discovery of of physics, right? So Isaac Newton Yes, 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 uh, go. created essentially what we call classical physics. It's like car goes how fast? Brakes exert uh-huh. how much resistance? Car slows down at what rate? Throw ball up at this this angle, we can calculate its trajectory. Classical physics. Inertia, gravity. Yes. All that good stuff. Newtonian physics. Albert Einstein in the 20th century started to break some crazy new ground. He asked, maybe everything is made out of one thing. So actually when you said physics are like the smallest thing, you weren't that far off. Einstein- was being profound. He he essentially came up with, you know, his uh, famous theory of relativity and the equation E equals mc squared. So what he was saying is energy equals mass mm-hmm. uh, and, I, you know, pl- times the speed of light squared, right? Mm-hmm. And I probably got that equation wrong. But the, the point you need to walk away with is energy and mass are not two different things. They're the same thing. Energy and mass are not two different things. They're the same thing. Okay. Uh, okay. My brain just broke. Right. This... <laughs> I know, I know. The stuff the universe is made out of is essentially all one thing. 
that was his, he was looking for like a theory of everything. Another physicist named Niels Bohr, and we see him in the uh-huh. episode, he pioneered what's called quantum mechanics. Now, whenever you hear quantum, the only thing for me that's been helpful is quantum just to mania. think. Quantum mania. It's what happens. Ant-Man. <laughs> Ant-Man. Ant-Man and Wasp. Yes. Quantum mania. Ant-Man, quantum mania. Think of little people <laughs> zipping in and out of yeah. your cells with a tiny civilization he, down there. That's the most helpful fixed. thing you could I got think that of. fixed in my brain. Okay. Keep going. E- okay, but even Ant-Man, quantum just means what's happening at the smallest level possible. Like, whereas we can predict what a car does at the classical mm-hmm. level, what we found was that we can't actually predict what's happening at the quantum level at, like, they also call it the subatomic level. So smaller than atoms, things get all wacky and crazy. And we just, we don't even, we need a whole new set of rules to describe what's happening because it, because classical physics aren't working at this level. It's completely different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's all you need to know. So Einstein actually had a problem with that new development. It was too uncertain for him. He was pretty committed to the idea that we can observe basically everything, but one core tenet of quantum mechanics is uh, we are working all of a sudden with probability because in order to observe things, we actually break the thing we're observing. And so we can't directly observe what's happening within quantum physics. We can just predict things. And to our great surprise in the 20th century, we found out it works. We don't know how, Uh but it just works. There's a whole new set of rules that apply at the quantum level. So Basically, in a nutshell, we got really good at dealing with really, really small things in the 20th uh-huh. century. So back to Oppenheimer. He mastered quantum mechanics overseas. He mm-hmm. used, And that's the montage. He's meeting with all these German and Dutch mm-hmm. scientists, and he brings it back to America. So he pioneered the study of quantum yeah. mechanics in America. Yeah. And that's why you see he has like one student in his first seminar. Only one dude thought it was worth signing up to sit under Oppenheimer. Right, because it's they call it new physics, and it's blowing everyone's mind. But because Oppenheimer was so good about thinking about the tiniest things imaginable, quantum mechanics, he is the only candidate well enough suited to create nuclear fission or like splitting an atom apart. Amazing. Right, Amazing. he was at the cutting edge in America. He was he was like our guy. He was our only guy who could have done that. Okay. Cool. Everyone else, and this is just a fascinating twist of history. I don't think people understand this. Everyone else is German because Germany was not some barbaric backwater. They were the center of the civilized world at that point. Wow. It wasn't us. That's it was Germany. That's a big statement. Not England. No. No, it was Germany. Wow. Think of our best, the, think of the philosophers who have shaped the modern world. They're all German. Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah. Sigmund Freud. Yeah. Think of the, uh, like, and I don't know enough, that's, again, on the humanities side, I know more, but on the physics side, it's the same. And all these physicists who are coming over being rescued, they're all German. Right. Germany was the most well-educated country. They were making the breakthroughs. That's where the center of the world's intellectual life was happening in the 20th century, until the world wars. Right, right. That one, the one physicist comes over and he's like, oh, the, he's from the, the British blah, blah, blah. And he goes, how long have you been British? And he goes, since Hitler said I wasn't German. Right, right. Another fascinating twist. Again, this has some relevance to the movie, but it's just interesting. A huge disproportionate number of these physicists are Jewish as well. Mm. And the movie touches on that. Do you know it's why? It's just one of those things. 
That is one of the big questions of life, Carlin. We could so get into that. Why are so many Nobel Prize winners Jewish? They're smart. Yeah, it's incredible. But anyway, that's I. if that background's helpful, good. If not, fast forward. And Phil, who's my buddy who knows about quantum mechanics, if you're listening, don't hate me for the way I butchered it. Hey, so, okay, that's a little background on physics. Can you give us a little bit more on the history setting? Yeah, movie? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? Like what? What were some of your questions? Okay, so like World War II is happening. Right. Got it. I know about Hitler. Um, I think it's confusing because they're more, the more important feature of this movie is the Cold War is right. kind of getting started. Right. And they say that the dropping of the bombs is not the last act of World War II. It's the first act of the Oh, Cold yeah. War. Oh. That's where I get a little fuzzy, like... Um, like, okay, like I said, I understand that Spain was having a civil totally. war and the Communist Party had been helped. This is before World War II? Before during? and during. Yeah, Spain sat out World War II essentially because they were busy having their own thing. And that was, um, there was a fascist government right. and rebels were trying to overthrow it and they were supported by communists That's right. in Russia. That's exactly right. So Oppenheimer sent money. He's trying to support uh, people in, in Spain. Right. And he did it by sending money through the Communist Party. And that kind of that muddies his reputation because right about now, the Red Scare is starting right. to pick up and people are starting to freak out that there's communists right. um, everywhere. So so and they're already starting to worry about the communists before World War Two is even over. Right. Why? Why were people so afraid of communism? Uh, well, for one thing, the principles of Karl Marx are pretty, re you could say, <laughs> revolutionary. <laughs> I don't know. Am I a genius? I don't know. I just came up with nice. that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Karl Marx is like, religion sucks. Religion's the opiate of the masses. You know, down with established wealth, workers of the world unite and cause a revolution to happen and, you know, right. like, Property tear some stuff up. Theft. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are going to be really uncomfortable with that for a lot of reasons. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of the interplay you need to understand is that fascists f thought of themselves as like conservative and communists think mm -hmm. of themselves as liberal. And so fascists and communists always have an issue with each other, even though, ironically, they all kind of look like each other at the end of the day. Okay. So from what I understand, communism's on the far, 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 far left. Right. Fascism on the far, 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 far Right. Right. But I've heard it said that it's almost like a circle. And if you go far enough to either right or left, you meet back in the middle. That's right. Now, here's how this film will make sense to you if you realize that the circle hadn't really completed itself yet. Okay. So picture in World War One, the uh, good guys and the bad guys were a lot less clear. I'm not going to say totally unclear, but a lot less clear. You had Germans in America saying, well, I mean, we're immigrants from Germany. How about America supports Germany? Right. 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 And you had uh, basically that wasn't as much the case in World War Two because the sides were a little clear. But back in the 1910s, it wasn't immediately obvious that Germany was the big bad. Right. Because World War One is so still ambiguous. To yeah. Me. Like, I don't know why it started. I, I know well, about Archduke Ferdinand. And, <laughs> he got but shot. I don't. Yeah. Germany was still bad, but they weren't the big bad. They weren't roasting people in ovens in World War One. And you got to understand that even during World War II, we didn't know that we knew that we knew. Like, there was a lot of ambiguity. Is that mm -hmm. really happening? I don't know. The mm -hmm. same thing happened with communism. So you had, at the end of World War I, Russia gets overthrown and becomes the USSR, right, yeah, under Lenin right. and Trotsky. 
we didn't know how bad that was actually going to be yet. I mean, I think anyone paying attention kind of probably had misgivings and there probably were some bad, bad signs, uh -huh. but the circle hadn't gone all the way around. We didn't have the benefit of hindsight. We didn't know millions and millions and millions and millions of people were going to die because of the communist regimes right. in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Right. So right. then you have people like Oppenheimer who, for whatever reason, are attracted to communism. Maybe they just see like, hey, workers seem to be oppressed around the world. Yeah. Karl Marx has a solution. So I'm on the side of, quote unquote, the workers. I really, I care. I want to help. Right. And they're navigating, like all of us do, this tension between the extremes and the middle, different ideologies, what they say they're about versus how they actually play out in real life. There were a lot of communists yeah. who were just idealist uh, left-wing thinkers who really did care about the common good and cared about people and uh, mistakenly fell into communism but didn't understand the atrocities. Heck, that's happening today. The number of young Americans yeah. who call themselves communists is rising drastically. Yeah. Anyway, whole different conversation. I have less sympathy because we've yeah. seen communism now for a good hundred years you know, we shouldn't be duped by it, but that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. Anyway. No, I'm, I'm going to say I kind of sense this in the air. A lot of my friends who are more um, on the left, they feel comfortable with words like communism <laughs> right. and it feels appealing. Right. And I understand why it feels appealing. But I also have friends who like have lived in communist occupied countries. Right. Um, and they would say, don't ever, ever, ever wish that on your worst enemies. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Your freedoms are stripped. And it's important to understand, too, that uh, a lot of good, hardworking people supported fascism at first, not understanding that the political right, the political extreme right can be corrupted the way it ended up being corrupted. You know what I mean? What's like a poster slogan of fascism that would sound moderately appealing? Oh, um, I mean, it's everything from like, we need to preserve our traditions against people that want to water them down or take them away. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, it's anti-communist in a lot of ways as well. Like they see the excess of communist and the solution isn't, well, maybe we should, you know, I don't know, extend some kind of charity to workers. Uh, it's to just shut it down. Like if you're an agitator and you're against tradition, yeah. then, you know, screw you, you're going to jail. Like, that, I mean, that's how Hitler did it. Like, I think we're more wary of fascism today. It just sounds like racism it to us. It sounds like, it, just the word sounds harsh and bad and scary. Yeah. Yeah, but we need to understand communism killed way more people than, than fascism, fascism in the 20th century. Oh, yeah. By how much? By far and away. You know numbers? Millions. Off the top of my head, I don't. But uh, if you include the people who starved to death under communist regimes that... Yeah through wacky ideology. I just researched a guy named Lysenko and there's a whole communist sphere of agriculture called Lysenkoism uh -huh. where he believed in influenced by Marxist ideas that the world isn't bound by certain traditions, right? Like, like labor can rise up and control the means of production. Lysenko believed we could train plants that normally grow in the summer to grow in the winter. Right. right. If we use experimental biology on them, it's it's complete wackadoo. Mm -hmm. He like uh, rejected Western genetics entirely. And as a result, the USSR planted, you know, millions of acres of crops that were supposed to bloom in the winter and 60 million people starved as a result of that. Right. It created mass famine. Oh, yeah. And there just wasn't food and people were dying. And also Stalin had the best farmers in Russia killed, the Kulaks, who were like wealthy farmers. He th saw them as a threat 
and had them all killed. So there's no farmers anymore. There's some measly collective farms. Anyway. Crazy. <laughs> anyway. Oh my gosh. These ideas, I mean, to use an old phrase that some of our listeners will be familiar with, ideas have consequences. That's right. Big ones. They do. On the left and the right. And so what we need is a commitment to truth and an accurate view, I would argue, of human nature. And that's where leftist ideas tend to go wrong. They view human nature through an idealistic lens that does not take into account what, what we as Christians would say, the elements of the fall. Mm. So, but mm-hmm. my goodness, what about Oppenheimer? Yeah, what about it? <laughs> what about it? Okay. We might have to do a part one and a part two here because this has just been history background. And you got me talking. I could talk about history all day, well, every day. that's why I'm so glad I'm doing a podcast with you because you know lots about this. And it's interesting. When, when you talk about it, I always find myself getting excited and interested in it as well. When I wouldn't know where to start. I, I wouldn't, on my own, I think I would just... I might, I stop listening and I'm not really tracking. So case, that's the background. Mm. Let's mm. talk about the themes. Do you, do you have an idea of like an outline? What, what were the primary themes in this movie? Absolutely. I think I picked up on a few and I'm curious to get your take. Um, mm. Three in particular. First of all, what if the chain reaction doesn't stop? Yeah. So that's a phrase you hear again and again in this movie. Yeah. And I think it refers to many things. First of all, what if the just straight up bomb we're making doesn't stop exploding and incinerates the atmosphere? Because there's near zero, but it could happen. (laughs) But second of all, what if the chain reaction of Oppenheimer's life doesn't stop? What if he's on this trajectory now as Uh. the father of the atomic bomb? He wants to get off the train. He wants to stop what he started, but he can't. And his life falls apart as a, as a okay. result. Okay, interesting. And thirdly, maybe this is a stretch, but I don't know. I think what if, what if the truth becomes impossible to know? What if the chain reaction of, of world events conspires because of the creation of the yeah. atomic bomb? There's so much power now that truth itself starts to die in the aftermath as people scramble to control wow. the power. So what if the chain reaction doesn't stop? Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. One question I had, Carlin, when he's, I mean, this scene was so powerful. When he walks into the auditorium, yeah. did you notice how it looks like the atomic bomb is in front of his head and then it turns out to be a basketball no. goal? What? No. I don't know. Maybe no, that was just me. Sure it looked like a mushroom cloud. It's Christopher Nolan. looked like a mushroom cloud, but then it's just a basketball goal. I just felt like that scene, mm. after they've successfully completed the Trinity yeah. test and Oppenheimer's trying to talk to the crowd of successful people that he's just jubilantly led towards this goal. Yeah, they're all cheering. I think that's where we start to see the uncontrollable chain reaction uh, build to a crescendo. Am I mistaken in saying that this is, so they do the Trinity test successful, and then basically right away, they launch Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he finds out about it, and everyone's still cheering, like, we won, we won World War II. Um, Right. And he, all of a sudden, he realizes his theories have become reality. And, right. and when he hears the people cheering and stomping, what he hears is screaming. And what he sees yeah. is people getting their faces melted off. Oh, my gosh. Right. He alone understands, and the handful of scientists, they all understand what it is they've done. Yeah. And But it's out of his hand at that point. Like, the line that got me uh, the most is when the soldier guy says, with respect, Dr. Oppenheimer, we'll take it from here. 
Yeah. He's like, call me. Call me when you find out. And he's like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll do my best. Right. He alone, who has an accurate idea of what this bomb is capable of, missed yeah. his chance to stop it. He got so yeah. caught up in the science and he thought he could like maybe be a voice to slow its progress afterwards. And I think what the movie's showing us is, yep, chain reaction. We knew this was going to happen. And just the sense of true powerlessness. Like, they got the chumpiest chump soldier to be like, with respect, Dr. Oppenheimer. Like, do you trust that guy with a nuclear bomb? No, but that's the guy driving the truck as they drive away. (laughs) So it's out of his hands now. um, And there's this kind of a secondary theme maybe that we can get into a little bit more as we go along. But how responsible is he? Right. For what happens. Right. Um, and, and it's complicated because, like Einstein says, here's what you should do. Disclose your findings to the Germans. And hopefully that will be enough to school their cannons a little bit. And everybody can just take a chill pill before there are nuclear weapons. But the whole time, they just assumed that the Germans could be right a step behind or a step ahead of us. And that's right. why if we don't make these bombs, they will. Um, right. And I think he kind of trusts to that to say, uh, well, it, uh, hopefully if everybody has a nuclear bomb, no one will use them. Right. Then boom, 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 or rather boom, boom. They're used even in the blink of an eye. Like Right. So fast. And he's feeling his responsibility. He's feeling the weight of all of that. Yeah. You know what? I loved the character of Oppenheimer. Chris mm-hmm. Nolan wrote this dialogue in such a way that really... I think captures the complexity of this man. Hmm. It does not, I don't know how you feel. I don't think it gave us a simple answer to, is he responsible? Is he not? Hmm. The film is very uh, sympathetic to Oppenheimer because he's the tragic, uh, like anti-hero almost. Yeah. Right. They start with the story of Prometheus who stole fire from the gods and then is tortured for all eternity. That's Oppenheimer. This film is based on the book, American Prometheus. It's a biography of Oppenheimer. Yeah, right. So that's where they get that imagery. And so he's meant to be a tragic hero. We're meant to really empathize with him. But I think I think your question is right. Like, are we meant to say then that he's responsible, even if he didn't want to be? Or are we meant to say that it's kind of out of his control and he did the best he can do? What do you think? Gosh. Um... There's kind of two sides of him that I see. One is the side that says, all I've ever wanted to do is marry uh, physics and New Mexico. Right. Um, like, so he innocent. Just, he loves <laughs> physics and he wants to, he has to. I mean, he, there's kind of this scientific madness to him where he is right. obsessed. And we see that in the opening montage where they show the actual physics spinning in a circle like right. physics do. And he's just like, he can't. <laughs> so he, cool he can't, it's like it's his nature he can't help it he just loves it there's then this other side where you really see his compassion and his humanity like he's truly brokenhearted about um he feels very responsible for abandoning gene right um and right. and uh he says i'll always be there and she's kind of counting on him and then when at one point he's not there and she takes her life and he's so brokenhearted about that and you see his his compassion and his responsibility and his remorse and and even guilt uh, for that outcome. So I think we kind of get both sides of of his character in that sense. Sometimes he's brazen and he's just going to take someone else's wife or try to get his, drop his kids off at his friend's house and like, 
things that are kind of schmarmy and we don't like it. Um, but other times he's very sensitive and very sympathetic. Right. I think, Carlin, they resolve that question over time. And I think the, the nonlinear way the story is set up kind of adds to the complexity. But in my mind, if you lay it out chronologically, you have mm. a young, confused young man who finds his calling in physics because the cosmos, he's like unlocking the secrets of the cosmos all right. of a sudden. He can hear the music. Then he transforms into this exuberant, top of his game, like he knows physics. He builds the department at yeah. Berkeley. He's like you're saying, he's very cocksure. He's a womanizer. Yeah. He's got all this stuff. Then as it goes on, he he's broken. Like it yeah. like life breaks yeah. him. And Gene commits suicide and he realizes he's created this thing and brought it to the world and it's completely not under his control. And the tragedy is he thought it would be. Mm. And to me, that's how they answer that question. And, it, and it's the other theme I was mm. going to bring up. The tragedy of genius slash hubris. Yeah. Yeah. He right? says there's a line where uh, he says genius covers a lot of things. Right. But it doesn't. But there's a limit. There's a limit right. to what his genius can do. And in fact, then you see his picture on the cover of Time magazine and it's this is like the worst case for him. Like he is being associated for all eternity right. as the father of the atomic bomb. Um, he wants to be remembered for Trinity, not for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Wow. What a powerful line. What do you make about that scene in the Oval Office where he walks in and it's the Secretary of Defense? <laughs> Harry Truman. And Harry Truman. Yeah. What did you think of that? Gosh, they had to they had to drag our boy Harry Truman just straight through the mud, didn't they? <laughs> like he is such a buffoon in that scene. Yeah. I don't know enough about Truman to definitively be like, that's a caricature and it's wrong. Uh -huh. I don't know. Maybe Truman just didn't lose a lot of sleep at, at night. In fact, actually, sources say he, uh, he took that decision on himself and he did sleep soundly after he made it. But they made it seem like Truman couldn't even remember Nagasaki, like as if yeah. he remembers Hiroshima but doesn't really remember the name Nagasaki. Oh, yeah, what's that other place we bombed? I don't care. You know what right. I mean? Like well, then, Truman. I'll push back on you. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Because I think that's how they set off the scene. Like, he's got this um, kind of presidential plastic face slapped on there. And Oppenheimer has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Yeah. And they kind of make this joke like, oh, nice picture in the magazine, whatever. Ha ha. Like, we're being, um, we're like following the rules of. Right. It's very, like an American etiquette, you know, congenial and whatever. Right. But then he says, to be honest, Mr. President, I feel a lot of responsibility. Right. And Truman leans in close and says, they're not going to hate the one who created the bomb. They're going to hate the one who dropped the bomb. Yeah. As if to say, you don't think that you're um, bearing this responsibility yourself. Like, I carry the weight as well. But then he says, get this crybaby out <sighs> right. of here. And that is historically historically accurate, by the way. They did have they had a that. disastrous <laughs> meeting. And Truman called Oppenheimer the crybaby scientist. Because he was busy wringing his hands over this invention that he did. Yeah. Wow. And is that because he thinks the the responsibility of, of dropping the bombs is greater than that of building them? Truman took that responsibility very seriously. In fact, he did not consult. Uh, well, he consulted people. But at the end of the day, he made it very clear that he was taking on moral responsibility for that decision, him alone. And wow. growing up when I read that, I guess... 
to me, that was a, a noble thing that Truman did. He wasn't trying to say, well, uh, on the on the advice of my counsel, you know, it's like people seem to want me to drop this bomb, you know, but it's like, it's them. I'm doing just, I'm just here to do what I, you know, he was like, no, leadership right. demands I take responsibility for my action. So to me, yeah. it's almost like that meeting between them serves two purposes. One, it's a rebuke to Oppenheimer's uh, ego, where he thinks he can be like, I invented the bomb, but I don't have to take responsibility for it getting dropped. Like Truman's like, if we're going to use it, then just man up. Don't be a crybaby, right? Yeah, and it, right. But I also think Chris Nolan's trying to further the first theme of the chain reaction that's completely out of Oppenheimer's control by painting Truman a little bit like a buffoon. It just heightens our anxiety that the people who control the bomb are not really trustworthy. They're pretty cavalier about it. Right. 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 Which is, which is the same as Oppenheimer's anxiety. Right. Um, to just push on a different theme here. So he gets rebuked, uh, by Truman. He also gets rebuked by Kitty. Yeah. That was a big, kind of reoccurring theme where she's like, why aren't you fighting? Oh man. Yeah. And to return to that, that really graphic scene, um, you think at first she's all upset that he reveals that he cheated on his wife yeah. and he turns her and trying to kind of justifying himself. He's like, I didn't say anything you didn't already know. And she's like, yeah, but they didn't know. Like basically you just rolled over. Now they know you slept with a communist. Why aren't you fighting this kangaroo trial? Yeah. Harder? He says, I have my reasons. I think you're honing in on something so important there, Carlin, because Kitty says, ah, oh, and this line was killer. She said, you don't get to commit the sin and then seek sympathy from the rest of us because it had consequences. Ooh. She's talking about his affair with Jean Tatlock mm-hmm. and that Jean killed herself because Oppenheimer made promises he couldn't keep to her. While he was mm-hmm. a married man, he knew better. So she's mm-hmm. like, you don't get to do the thing and then play the victim while the rest of us comfort you when it's mm. your decision that did this. In essence, that same moral calculus applies to the bomb. Yeah. Oppenheimer wow. doesn't yeah. get to create the bomb, test it at Trinity, help pick the landing site in yeah. Japan, and yeah. then pretend like he's not responsible for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's a wow. strong theme of that. Uh, in the movie, right? Does that change your answer? Because a second ago you said you think Nolan wants us to feel complicated right, and not resolved one way or the other. Does that make you think that he is guilty? I think Nolan wants us to feel complicated. And within that framework, I think the movie really is a caution of against hubris in a lot of ways. Hmm. Because Oppenheimer does this terrible thing and he does a lot of terrible things and then it just breaks him like the second half is him just getting destroyed watching you know to borrow the analogy from prometheus watching his own liver be plucked out by a raven for all eternity you know what i mean right and i don't know carlin i mean this is something i I would love this is a this is the beauty of a chris nolan film there's layers and layers and layers it takes a lot of thought right like one thing that i thought about is we Westerners in the modern world view Prometheus as a hero. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, ha ha, trick the gods. Now humanity has warm fire. Hesiod, who wrote that story down the first time, mm. view, kind of views him as a lowborn, kind of a trickster. 
Wow. You know what I mean? He's like justly suffering his fate for daring to thumb his nose at the gods. Mm. He's impish. We, sh- we shouldn't have had that fire. Mm. And the gods are justly punishing a fool for his foolish decisions. Interesting. Fascinating. What does Chris Nolan think of Prometheus? I don't know. I'd love to see him answer that in an interview. Maybe he has. I, I think it matters also what is fire. Because fire is a tool. It can save lives. It can cook food. But it can also become a weapon of destruction. Uh, Peter Kreeft is a philosopher who had a line about living in a nuclear age. He said, the atomic bomb has done something no philosopher through human history has ever been able to do. It has made virtue necessary for human survival. Ooh, was that really true? If humans don't use atomic energy correctly, we will all be obliterated many times over, right? That's the power Oppenheimer brought into the world. One other thing helps me frame where Chris Nolan is coming at this story from, and it has to do with that final scene. I wanted to get your take on this. Einstein is not hubristic no, at all. he's really quite lovable. In, <laughs> he's lovable. In this, he's portrayed as an absolute, just like a humble yeah, genius, yeah. right? His hat flies off. He's like nice and kind, yeah. right? But he has that kind of throat punch for Oppenheimer at the end. When he's like, I remember when they gave me some honorary award and fed me pudding and salmon, you know. Just remember, Oppenheimer, they're going to be doing it for them because it's convenient for them. What I think he's doing is poking a hole in Oppenheimer's self-importance, right? Because remember, this happens before Oppenheimer takes the Princeton job and before his life gets destroyed in that subcommittee, kangaroo committee, and before all of that happens... Einstein is like almost checking his uh, ambition by saying, what's happening to me, you know, my time has passed. It's going to happen to you. And remember, when they're nice to you again, it's not for them. Or it's not for you. It's for them. That's before the kangaroo court. So he's just, he's flying high because he, well, no, because the bombs have already been dropped and he's been devastated by that. He successfully pulled off the Manhattan Project. That's right. And there's a cocky element where he almost he like tried to rescue it by being cocky by human. Because remember, he still goes and humiliates his boss afterwards. Right. After the Manhattan Project. So maybe he has a moment of doubt during the Trinity test, but he chooses to cover it up by basically trying to be larger than life by being like so great. That now his, you know, maybe as the father of the atomic bomb, they'll listen to me as to why we shouldn't do the hydrogen bomb. Right. And why we shouldn't do all these other more dangerous things. Yeah. But Carlin, I honestly think the reason why he fails is that he's doing it for his own ego at the end of the day. Hmm. And so he's not consistent. Like in that hearing, they just grill him on like, why wouldn't we drop a hydrogen bomb? Why is an atom bomb better than a hydrogen bomb? He doesn't have an answer. Hmm. ultimately his logic is fatally flawed because he he knows that what he did there's no going back and technically it isn't that much different than a hydrogen bomb he's just desperate to retain some kind of moral high ground as a way of rehabilitating his own sense of self Hmm. again it's that genius genius makes up for a lot right Um, but if you believe that and you apply it to yourself then what you're really depending on is not your it's not just your self-importance it's your actual importance he does have a degree of actual importance right but he he counts too much on his self-importance to to save his reputation and it it doesn't work right 
totally. So to me, that's the second theme. If the first one is, what if the chain reaction doesn't stop? What if we're, what if he unleashes something that he can't control? The second one is the tragedy of hubris because in his heart of hearts, he really thought he could be smart enough to make everything pan out in his life with his affairs yeah. and his children and his wife yeah. in the, in the hearings and the testimonies. He really thought he was above all of it and that he was one step ahead and could do it. Right. But there's moments of haunting clarity, like at, like when he's giving that address and he sees the outcome of the atomic bomb and it's so existentially terrifying. He just can't deal with it. Yeah. And so then a third theme, Carlin, I wanted to throw out there is maybe self-punishment as a means of trying to find redemption. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And this, this explains all of Kitty being like, like she has that line. Do you think that if you let them tar and feather you, the world would forgive you? Hmm. It won't. Right. Yeah. Oppenheimer is just taking a beating and he's just taking it lying down essentially. Like, like you, you said it. She says, why put yourself through this? Mm-hmm. And Oppenheimer says, I have my reasons. The money question is, Carlin, what are those reasons? What do you honestly think his reasons are for putting himself through that? Uh, it feels like penance to me. It feels like he's trying to make up for the responsibility that he feels. That he didn't think he would feel, but he actually can't escape mm. that his actions did directly lead to these horrible mm. events. And that's his recourse is just beat himself up like he rides his horse out into nowhere and almost freezes to death when gene dies right it's like he's trying to punish himself and his wife is the voice of countering that she's calling him out on that and she's like enough of this self-pitying ridiculousness yes what is what is her ground for saying that why does she why does she say that man i don't know that's a great question on one hand it's just who she is she's a fighter Mm. she's feisty Mm -hmm. you know what i mean On the other hand, I I just kind of feel like we intuitively recognize that she has a right to say that, like especially about the affair. Yeah. You don't get to commit the sin and then expect everyone's sympathy because it had consequences. Pull yourself together. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Your self-martyrdom is actually hurting me and our children. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that's what Chris Nolan thinks her justification is? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I think so. I think so. Uh, And again, I love it. This movie is so complex and that's that is a sign of good filmmaking i think or that they're telling a real story mm. like at the end she doesn't shake that one scientist's hand who oh, absolutely that re- was a great scene yeah yeah reamed oppenheimer well he shakes that guy's hand but kitty is unwilling to she just stares him down shivers and also her, her her testimony in the hearing was pretty significant oh yeah at first she's all like her head's down and she's kind of like quiet and very still and the guy the look on the guy's face is like oh i'm gonna just dominate her in this cross-examination and then her head right. pops up and she starts she starts well remind me how does that scene go yo she just starts pushing back and he can't take it like she yeah. actually scores some points yeah you know what i mean because she's not just well she's not racked by guilt you mm. know I mean, one could argue maybe she should be because she's a terrible mom you know yeah, right but in this matter she's not racked by guilt Hmm. I mean, more than her, I think she's a mirror to Oppenheimer because we're meant to just see that he is racked by guilt and it's destroyed the man that he was. So the question Carl and I have uh, at the end of the day, Strauss says some very poignant lines. Yeah. He says, uh, the bomb made him the most important man who ever lived. And he loved it. I wanted to, I, I gave him exactly what he wanted. Strauss says... He wanted to wear his insincere guilt like a crown. 
Whoa. Yeah. He wanted to be remembered for Trinity, but not Hiroshima. Yeah. So the money question, because again, one question I don't have answered is what's the deal with Strauss, right? But, but pause that one for a second. And mm-hmm. just what do you think the film is trying to say then about Oppenheimer? Should we remember him for Trinity, but not Hiroshima? Because he's clearly maligned by the guy who says that very insightful line. Right. What is that? What do you mean maligned? What do you mean? Uh, like Strauss has a personal vendetta against Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. So he's he's acting out of bad faith. He's got terrible motives for saying that. My question is, does the film want us to think that that line is true? I think that line serves to highlight uh, the that there's still pride in the self-flagellation. Hmm. That's still a, an expression hmm. of his hubris when he's... Um, kind of wallowing and beating himself up. And I think, yeah, I, I do think we are supposed to agree with it. Um, I think we're meant to, what's confusing is we go on this journey with Oppenheimer and we feel his feelings and we sympathize with him. But I think at the end of the day, everyone is yeah. responsible Wow, for their decisions. Yeah. And I think Christopher Nolan settle, settles on that too. He does it very, very subtly and with lots right. of nuance. I agree with you. Yeah. Strauss in that moment's telling the like the cold hard truth. You know? Yeah. It's ironic. I think it's ironic cuz Strauss is doing the same thing. He wants to be self-important, but Oppenheimer's more important <laughs> than he is, so he needs to take him down. It's just mean, base. Yeah. Like not even trying to do the right thing, you know, just gross. Oppenheimer yeah. at least had moments where he genuinely did try to do the right thing. Right. He made a fool of it because of his hubris, but at his core, there's a piece of him that like wanted to protect his friend, for example, who wasn't right. out and out betraying the United States. You know, mm-hmm. he, if anything, he was naive because like General Grove says, he kind of has that schoolboy morality where he won't snitch on a friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. So right. he's a naive fool. But but in that case, he he's trying to actually do the right thing on both sides. The problem is he's he can't play the middle. Right. Strauss, by contrast, is just a gross politician who wants to take him down. Oh, man. It, are you ready to get into our third point? I think we should because this podcast this is, is eternal. Episode. Let's not split da, it into da, da, two. Da, da, Let's da. just do one mega episode. Man, you do feel really sympathetic for him because you see all the complexity of the motivations and that he wants to do the right thing. And you I really believe he does in certain cases. How can he do the right thing without also doing the wrong thing? Mm. Well, I think one answer we can take away is that he could have he could have done more of the right thing if his hubris hadn't gotten in the way of it. Um. If he was able to see the world clearly and just flatly say, I understand what I'm doing. I understand the consequences. Either I won't do it or I will, but I'm going to be honest that I won't be the one to save the world. I understand ahead of time. I'm going to have nothing to do with how this bomb is deployed. I'm taking a moral gamble. The tragedy really is in Oppenheimer's belief that he could save the day somehow, that he could play all sides, still emerge the hero, that his genius would truly save him from that. That's what makes it a heartrending story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
whether or not to drop the atomic bomb is so far beyond the purview of this podcast. Like ethicists have debated it and will continue to debate it. I personally, Carlin, don't know what I would do. There have been moments where I've been like, mm. yeah, I, w- I would drop the bomb. There have been other moments where I've thought about it and I've thought, no way. How could you do that? How could you unleash nuclear holocaust right. on a, an entire city of 200,000 people? What we're, t- what we're tempted, I think what we all would be tempted to say is, I hope the bomb gets dropped, but I don't want to be the one to do it. Yeah, boy. How about that? In that sense, you have a little bit more respect for Truman. Right. Who, right or wrong, at least he owns the decision. Taking He's not going to pass the buck yep. off on anyone else. And Oppenheimer, he the, the, the responsibility lies in the fact that he is the only one probably capable to successfully complete the Manhattan Project. Right. And he believes that. And he does it. And so whether or not he pushes the button, just said no, there would be no bombs. They wouldn't have gotten dropped. You know, when we bring our Christian worldview to bear on this, Carlin, I just find that there are so many morally ambiguous decisions we have to make in the world. But what we can depend on are moral principles undergirding those tough ones. If you do something with the wrong heart, the wrong attitude, Jesus says this. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he says also a good tree produces good fruit. A good person from the goodness within them produces Mm. good things. A bad person Mm. from the evil within them produces bad things, right? And ultimately, Jesus is saying no one's good. You You need the humility to repent and come to God and recognize that you're a bad person and bad things are the fruit of a lot of your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. but that moral principle out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's almost like if you are driven by selfish ambition or or just hubris mixed with truly delightful levels of genius, you can't go right in the world. No matter how hard you try, your inner motives will eventually betray you and it will lead to catastrophe. Like Mm. pride goes before the fall. The phrase isn't complicated moral dilemmas go before the fall because our heroes face those dilemmas and they face them with purity of spirit and we root for them. Our Mm. tragic anti-heroes, our villains face them and the hubris leads to a situation where they can't go right no matter what they do, right? Mm. And just to put a spiritual point on that, Scripture is so clear that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are going to face situations in this life where we don't know. We don't immediately know the answer, right? Mm -hmm. But if we have humility, we stand the only chance we really have of getting it right in the long run. Yeah, that's the only answer because we find ourselves. And I felt this way sometimes in some of our conversations where we get to, uh, especially when we we hit on the theme of... um, do the ends justify the means? Mm-hmm. Be- because a lot of times in movies, that theme is, you know, you have to make a really hard decision one way or another. And it feels impossible to do what's right. But the answer Christianity brings to the table is be humble. Right. And then how is that not a cop out, though? Does that not shirk the responsibility of that question a step away? Well, I think it's not the only moral calculation. I think so. I'm a moral realist, which means I mm-hmm. believe there is right and there is wrong, irrespective of what people think. Mm-hmm. And the terms of what's right and wrong are, are set by God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe there is a right answer to 
ultimately, should we have dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I think there's a right answer to that. Along with being a moral realist, however, I'm something of an epistemic skeptic. Okay. So what is our human ability to know the truth about everything? Well, it's more than some people think. We can know the truth about some things. Yeah. We, we, have, we are given certain grounding principles, which is like, we talked about this last time on Mission Impossible. Like the Nazis at Nuremberg yeah. were morally responsible for their actions. Right. They knew better. Right. Human beings on some level, even if it's deep, deep down, we know better. Yeah. Right? And there's that, like you said in Ephesians, that last episode, the, the sons of disobedience are given over to the hardening of their hearts. Right. They choose to harden their hearts. And then at some point, they blind themselves to the truth. Right. Right. The danger as a human being on this earth isn't that you'll be always so sensitive and feel bad for everything you do. It's that you'll actually get to the point where you don't feel bad for anything you do anymore. Yeah. People do that. And then they die that way. You know what I mean? Like, that's the most dangerous condition you can be in. So I guess my answer, Carlin, is there are moral facts. Like, a Christian worldview gives us, like, systems of ethics grounded in... um well, for example, just war theory, yeah. which is grounded even further in the image of God in every person, Christian or otherwise. So as far as it depends on us, we need to minimize harm, right? We could get into some of that. Mm-hmm. But where those principles um, fail, where, or, where, where, they, where we don't know enough to make the calculation, we should be forced to our knees to pray to God for wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it. There has to be a power higher than us that we can appeal to. Mm. Because while there is a right answer, our ability to know it as human beings sometimes is just painfully limited, right? But with God's help, if we ask him, he promises to come through for us. The problem is we don't care to ask him Mm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. But second of all, I mean, I take comfort in the fact that even our mistakes can be redeemed by the God of creation, who holds the world in his hand. If if this life is the extent to which we're counting on, I mean, it's just monstrously unfair. None of the people in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki deserve to die. And, I, and actually, I think that's just true as a brute moral fact. However, God has a way of not creating evil, but using even the evil to create something redemptive and good. And that's where our ultimate hope is for eternity, mm. right? Where at the end of the day, God sifts the the goats and the sheep, the goats, AKA the bad guys in the biblical metaphor. Mm-hmm. Not the greatest of all time. No, <laughs> no. The true goats are the sheep. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning the, the people that are humble and have accepted God's gift of forgiveness. You know what I mean? He, and he knows human hearts. What it does is give you immense responsibility and, if you're humble before God, immense relief from the burden of your actions. You know what I mean? Because we are incapable of screwing things up so bad that they destroy eternity. We can't do it. We 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 have not been given that power. We can make a hell on earth, but we can't make a hell in heaven. Wow. Christianity doesn't relent on the responsibility. So your only recourse is broken-hearted humility. Totally. That's the only way to save yourself. Absolutely. Is raw, honest, broken-heartedness for the fact that your decisions are going to be flawed and the consequences are going to be yeah. real. Yeah. Timothy Keller says, um, he says, Christianity doesn't just say you need to repent for your sins. It says you need to repent for all your good deeds 
because even your good <laughs> deeds were done with mixed motivations. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Carlin, that just leads to that major theme that Oppenheimer just sort of wallows in. Uh, where is the redemption for horrible things we've done? Can we punish ourselves enough to make good on our our crimes? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does a Christian worldview have anything else to say about that? Sure does. Yeah, actually, it's so beautifully simple. We can't do enough to make amends. It's, it's as if... Um, if cosmic justice, cosmic right and wrong in the universe is is more like a debt. Uh, if you do something wrong, there's a payout. And you, if you do something wrong, you owe a debt to goodness. You owe a debt to God. Um, in the Psalms, it says, against you only have I sinned. Um, David's crying out to God and is begging him to make him a clean heart again. And he's just on his knees repentant for his sin. He said, against you only have I sinned. And... If that's the case, um, we need someone who could pay a debt for us, an eternal debt. And there's only one person who could do that, and it would have to be God himself. Mm. And that's yeah. that's what that's what Christianity is. It's that's what the gospel is. It's that it's, it's the good news that God himself has paid your debt. That's the heartbeat. Of the gospel. But you know, it's interesting, Carlin. I feel like a lot of Christians miss it. Instead of that freedom that that offers, along with the responsibility to say, I can't punish myself enough for this, my best bet is to repent, ask for forgiveness, and then care about other people, mm-hmm. right? Because Oppenheimer's hubris is it's not helping his wife and children. Hmm. It's not actually slowing down the nuclear arms race that's occurring. Right. Right. If he had integrity, he'd say, I made a huge, like if he really felt like, okay, I did wrong, he'd say, I made a huge mistake Yeah. and I need to make right on it. Please, I beg you, do not create hydrogen bombs. Yeah. Instead, he tries to play the middle and he's like, well, you know, given our resources, I probably wouldn't have. And then they're just like, would you drop the hydrogen bomb if it would have ended the war? And he's like, I reflected the opinions of the scientists, blah, 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 blah. It's like, dude, take some responsibility, right? What he's trying to do is repair his image right he's not trying to repair his actions right he's trying to rebuild his Repa- reputation yes oh you nailed it he you nailed it right yeah. and it's subtle difference but it makes all the difference at the end of the day and here's the deal carlin the closer you get to real repentance like that the more freeing the more life-giving yeah. the more humanity affirming yep. more restful it is Trying to prop up your own reputation when you know that you've done bad things is exhausting. Trying yeah. to, it involves lying to everyone, including yourself. Yeah. It involves lying to your loved ones and pretending you're not as bad or you haven't hurt them. Yeah. You just have to shove that down. And to be honest, a lot of people encounter Christianity, they want to get their lives together. And so they go to church and they put themselves back together. And what they end up embracing accidentally is a form of legalism that says, I can't screw up. I've done it so bad in the past that I need to spend my whole life whipping myself to make amends for what I've done. And what they're doing is missing the gospel. It's a gospel of freedom. Yeah. You're supposed to lay the, the burden down at the feet of Christ and say, I agree with you that what I did was terrible. Yeah. And I just thank you that you think I'm worth forgiving anyway. 
And you can entrust the consequences of your behavior to his loving care. Right. That he's the great physician and will heal the people that you wounded. Oh my you gosh. You can't heal them. You can't save them, but he can. I, I'm thinking of multiple stories right now. Uh, our dad knows a guy who uh, tried to rob a Taco Bell as a teenager, ended up shooting a guy. This guy is serving a huge term in prison. And the fact is nothing he does, that prison term is not bringing the guy he killed back. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So like he didn't mean to kill him, but it happened. It happened. And he's gone. And you his got family is never going to see him again. Right. There's one way out. It's repentance and forgiveness. I've heard it said really well by Dr. Henry Cloud um, in his Boundaries Not Me podcast where he said, he said, guilt, um, a lot of times when we are quote unquote feeling guilt, it's not really a feeling. It's a, it's a state of, of true or not true, guilty or not guilty. But we experience it as this feeling and it, and um, it's coming against us. Uh, and so usually your response is, how can I feel less guilty? And, hmm. and the, the result of that is basically, how can I justify myself? How can I get the guilt off of me? But hmm. what he says, the Christian response, better response is remorse. And, and if guilt is coming against you and you have to defend against it, uh, remorse is coming from alongside you. It's coming from, you're moving in the same direction as remorse. And what it does is it takes you out of the equation, actually. And it says, let me focus on um, the victim of my, whatever I've done, yeah. whatever my wrongs have harmed. And and that's the difference between when you hear like an insincere apology and someone's like, well, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. <laughs> you know, that's someone who feels right. guilty and is trying to correct their reputation and get off of the charges. But when someone says, wow, I didn't realize that my words were going to hurt you this badly. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Your mission, care. your mission is how can I help the person that I hurt? And how much that does way more for the other, for the victim that does way yeah. more um, for towards reparations. Um, and, and it yep. takes you out of the limelight. You know what I mean? It's quite right. the opposite of what Oppenheimer does. It's not really about him and his reputation. It could be about what can I possibly do to make this better for the world? But he would have to have a great deal of humility to get there. Yeah. Right. Or just the faith of a mustard seed, yeah. scripture says. You know, it's at once the biggest, heaviest, most unthinkable thing to bring your sins to God. And at the same time, sometimes you just do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and we're all capable. You could do it right now. Like if you're listening to this and you feel that weight, you know, yeah. don't let it be theoretical. Yeah. Don't listen to this podcast and don't do anything about it. Yeah. Bring the weight, bring the weight to Jesus. Yeah. He wants to carry it for you. Yeah, it's like putting your fist down. Yeah. Carlin, we didn't even talk about the other theme. And like, <laughs> I think we need to cap it here, but I'll just say this. Yeah. The, the chain reaction that only grows and grows and grows. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what an incredible analogy for original sin. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, like, right. You mean like one sin in the Garden of Eden that yeah. just grows and grows and grows? Yes, until the whole world is ruined. But okay, and I'll just say this. Okay, I'll just okay, say just this. Say it. Just say Oppenheimer, it. Oppenheimer and his desperation to help people understand 
the responsibility that's on them now that they live in a, an atomic world. He says, we have to make them understand that this isn't just a new weapon. It's a new world. Yeah, a whole new world. A Nuclear energy point of view. Point of view. For another yeah. another mm. person can make that. We're drunk on the collaboration between Oppenheimer and other <laughs> franchises. There's Ooh, Barbie Oppenheimer. Tomorrow. There's Aladdin. Aladdin Oppenheimer. Um, anyway, hey, there's a quick a quick moment at the beginning when he walks into his new office and he's the guy's actually building the apparatus to like be testing out his physical theories and he's got like a sledgehammer in his hand and he's covered in grease and he's like, you want to lend a hand? And he's like, oh no no. I could, I uh, no, no, thank you. It's like he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to yeah. b- actually build the thing. He just wants to do his theoretical stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's a huge motif that we didn't even talk about, Carlin. And we're at an hour and a half right now in recording this. I know it. There's lots of layers. We just, we can't have it all. Chris, please release a, just release a nudity free version, and I give this film two thumbs way, way up. Well, I'm so thankful, Case, to have your insight and background on this because I was very confused. I was a little bored. But after talking about this and hearing the themes brought to light, is this what it's like to be a listener of Cinema Snorkel? I hope. I hope this is what our listeners get to experience. (laughs) We are that awesome, aren't we? We can be the hero. (laughs) We will have one podcast that will make such an explosion in the world of podcasts. This isn't just a new podcast. It's a whole new world. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys real soon. Hey, thanks for sticking with us on this massive, mega, ginormous episode of Cinema Snorkel. It's really not that big. Our other recordings are usually an hour and 30 minutes as well. <laughs>